This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by HBO and Succession. Succession tracks the lives of the Roy family as they contemplate their future once their aging father begins to step back from the media and entertainment conglomerate they control. IndieWire hailed the second season of Succession as the best show on TV. I am apt to agree with that assessment. The first season pulled me in. The second season surprised me. I cannot wait to see where this story keeps going. If you haven't seen it yet, you're in for a treat. Please check it out. Okay, welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor-in-chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. In this week's podcast, we'll talk about a few films that were actually announced in the upcoming fall festival uh, scenario that seems to be keep, evol- keep evolving around us. And uh, we'll, we'll touch on the summer release calendar that keeps changing around and what we've learned from the buzz on the can market as it continues to unfold. So, Ann, let's start with the first piece on that agenda because uh, it didn't look like it usually does, but we did get a fall festival announcement this week. The Toronto Film Festival announced uh, that it would have 50 films, obviously much less than a normal year. way smaller than usual. Normally you'd have over 300 like last year, uh, but it is, it is a, a slate and they will be announcing more, but they also gave us a couple of titles. So we actually do have a fall festival circuit that is being programmed and there is something of a lineup starting to come together. So what do you make of some of the films that we see here? I mean, Am and Well, Am and I, we, we had seen in the Cannes selection, um, along with Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round, which, by the way, was in the Cannes Marche, which we've been uh, looking at. There's an actual market going on, but they wouldn't let us watch it. <laughs> That's yeah, one of the ones that we couldn't was not see. Open to press, and to be yeah. fair, if that film had a market screening, it would have been hard for us to get into if the festival was really happening. But I, I, I did speak to people who saw it. They said, you know, Mads Mikkelsen won a one best actor. That one looks good. That one looks good. And uh, and then there's uh, Suzanne Linden's Spring Blossom, uh, Halle Berry's directorial debut, Bruised, uh, Naomi Kawasi's True Mothers, which is also from the Cannes selection. But we were expecting that. I mean, they would have been booking Cannes films anyway. You know, it's yeah. just that uh, oh, this may be our first crack at, at seeing them. But, but Eric, we're going to be watching these movies from here uh, in New York and in L.A. It's unlikely that you and I are going to go to Toronto. Well, we've been talking about this for weeks and weeks. And, uh, you know, we had Cameron Bailey on here a little while ago. I, I was saying, you know, I'm more than happy to hop in my car, make a stop in Niagara and, and come by whatever form that festival is going to take the Canadian border has to open to us first. And that could be an issue given all the spikes going on. Yeah, I mean, look, at the moment, it's supposed to open at the end of July, but we are seeing a weird situation in which, you know, even as a place like New York seems to have the situation more or less under control, Texas is having this huge spike. We're seeing, you know, places like Arizona having... Oklahoma. Oklahoma. So it's it's a real Florida. question. Yeah. And, um, and, it, and Cuomo's I, even closing the state. Uh, you have to quarantine for two weeks if you yeah. want to go from a spiky place. Yeah, and, and I do think that this raises some interesting questions about what role the festivals have here. I mean, it's not just, I mean, some of these films do look like the kinds of films you would travel to Toronto to see, but if you can't be there on the ground and we don't know, you know who's going to be actually be on the ground, what, what is the, the function 
that the festival premiere is going to have for these movies? Is it going to drive buzz simply because of a timing or the, you know, what is I think there, the what timing and the fact that you and your colleagues will be reviewing the movie and um, uh, I and my, you know, awards world colleagues will, will lay out awards chances like we ordinarily would. I mean, it's just a question of, of doing it in a different context with less um, audience reaction and buzz and people to talk to, but we'll be checking in with each other too. I think it, it won't be the same, but it will, it has to function. I really want to know what you think of the con marche. Yeah, the, the, well, the Marche du Film experience has been fascinating because we've been accredited. The press accreditation in the Marche is always kind of limiting anyway. I mean, I've had... Sometimes they make films available that you don't, have no interest in seeing. Yeah, and you want to see, like the Pablo Lorraine Emma, which already played. You've already seen it. They well, wouldn't let film, me watch it. That film sold to Music Box last year. I mean, it, there's a lot of films that are showing there that, you know, Amy Simons' film, She Dies Tomorrow, is, is screening the market for a lot of territories. I mean, there, there, there is um, an aspect to the Marche that has continued for the industry, and it's fascinating to see the way that it's set up in that respect. It is sort of limited, limiting from a press perspective, although speaking of Pablo Lorraine, just before we started recording today, I was listening to him do a, a panel moderated by the CEO of MUBI talking about filmmaking during the pandemic and, and the challenges that he and his company has faced. And I thought it was really fascinating because that is the kind of thing that I think a market can capture is the dialogue within the industry and how it sees itself at this particular moment. And I think that we should give some credit to uh, Jerome Payard and, and the Marche for maintaining that aspect. And the fact that we are seeing deals coming out of this thing in tandem with, you know, a, a pretty uh, substantial calendar of conversations shows people you that are, it's going along. It's moving definitely on. people are making uh, move. Remember, though, I mean, all these <laughs> all these announcements are fantasies. I, in other words, these are movies that people are hoping are going to get made. Well, and they're, they're not hoping they're going to raise. They are. No, money. they are. No, no. And unless they raise all the money they need. Those movies won't happen. They're, it's oh, that, all that about happens. setting up a package, setting up a possibility, and, and going out, hopefully, into the world. And this is a very, very uncertain world. So there's some films out there that I certainly hope uh, do get made. But remember yeah, that they're not, I mean, they're, they haven't gotten made yet. Yeah, and, and that is often the case anyway. I mean, there's that, that kind of ridiculous movie directed by that terrible guy, James Toback, a couple of years ago where Alec Baldwin goes to the Cannes market. That's and right. And to sell that movie That's to right. him. And uh, was it him and, uh, and Nev Campbell <laughs> doing like an Iraq love story. And everyone keeps telling me if you had Ryan Gosling and uh, Jessica Chastain, it would be a lot more marketable. And I'm sure that aspect of the industry is there as well, where it's like, you're hearing about projects that are being made because they sound like they're commercially viable, but getting them actually made now is a whole different kind of That's question. That's right. So, so it's more of a more of a pipe dream uh, than ever. But but uh, I th I'm impressed with what they did at the Marche. I um, I covered a, a panel that was um, interesting because it was the Academy. 
it was Don Hudson and uh, David Rubin, the president, introducing Lorena Munoz um, and Meredith Shea, uh, who are actually two of the people who are doing the work, <laughs> uh, especially on diversity and right. opening up the Academy membership over the past five years. And um, really, they were introducing, I think, uh, Munoz as a real star inside the Academy, a real driver for this change uh, that they've been pushing so hard for. Um, and so it was fascinating to see her sort of lay out the parameters of what they're going to try to do with this eligibility demand, which is a little bit controversial. Well, what is your take on it? Do you think that there's going to be a, a revolt against people who feel like they're being pushed out of the academy or their voices are being marginalized because of the desire to diversify? There's, there's definite, um, first of all, the academy is very liberal minded. And um, I think it's good that they're trying to be more transparent and show uh, the behind the scenes and, and let people, you know, they have operated very much like an ivory tower, a very insular place that's sort of, we're going to decide what's best, you know, for, for you. And now they're obviously doing a lot more outreach to members around the world and trying to uh, let them know that they want to invite them in and, and come and, and converse with them. So yeah. we'll see, we'll see. Um, um, I, how, uh, I mean, she said something interesting about, uh, I, I wondered what you thought about this. Uh, she said, well, you know, you, you have to open up your eyes and look at movies differently and not uh, just the way you've been looking at it. And I, I could see some Academy members taking umbrage at being told that they're not viewing art the way that she wants them to. But you know what? I am making that point every year, albeit in a different context, which is that, you know, we, we tend to have a very narrow-minded industry when it comes to the movies that gain attention to the among our wider culture, and the industry is complicit in that because of the kind of resources necessary to gain attention in Oscar season and outside of it. And the diversity issue is on some level tied to that. I mean, there might be a wider range of films that aren't being supported and people aren't talking about them. I think if the implication is that you think a movie is bad because of some you know, set of you know, aesthetic values that are off base, that's something that people should take umbrage about, but also think about, you know, are there other aspects of it that, uh, perhaps you didn't consider before and you should open yourself up to seeing a wider range of options. I couldn't well. agree more. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just speculating really that the uh, older white male dominant culture there uh, may, you know, uh, resist her. She's clearly uh, a rising star and she's absolutely right that people need to have their consciousness raised in many, many ways. And, it, and to facilitate change at organizations like this, you probably do have to risk offending people. Making them if, uncomfortable, yes. You have to challenge them. I think the word listen has been tossed around in a, in a very constructive way lately. It's You don't have to necessarily agree with what somebody says, but if they're challenging the status quo in a way that is designed to facilitate change, then you have to make the effort to hear them out. If people don't want to do that, and if, they, if they're going to start, you know, complaining to you and others on background about how they don't like being told what to do. Well, that's just, that's part of the process too. It might get a little ugly for a little bit, but hopefully they'll be able to bring in some new members and also recognize a, a wider range of films. I mean, we'll see this year what kind of films. It's going to be fascinating. Have. But I, mean, I worry, well, you were talking about the festivals before. What I am worried about, very seriously worried about, is that there are a lot, you want this 
uh, year to open up opportunities for smaller films to be considered in the conversation. That's what you're hoping will happen, art films. Oh. And, and I, <laughs> predictably, yes, of course, as do I. But I'm worried that there, the mechanisms for getting them attention and creating buzz and creating a profile are going to be lost um, and harder to find um, in, in this COVID world. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, it is part of the, the festival problem because what we were talking about earlier, you know, this idea of, well, maybe we, let's assume that some people are not on the ground at the festivals, but they're reviewing films at the times of their premieres. It's almost like the festivals aren't really happening. It's just like the same way, like I've watched Trolls World Tour on a, on a link that was good for 24 hours and then had to write my review by the next day. I mean, like, it doesn't create the same sort of platform for buzz necessarily if you just have reviews timed at a certain point in time and none of that sort of uh very specific targeted environmental experience that allows movies to be discovered i mean moonlight launched at telluride and it felt like i mean for those of us who knew who the filmmaker was and, and certain aspects about it we expected it to go over well but it felt like a discovery in terms of the way that movie was introduced to the world first the telluride thing very exclusive then the toronto screen was like another layer on top of that and you have this like gradual build and i don't see how the infrastructure we have at the moment is going to create that unless we can actually go to these festivals. Or I know. Some people. So Telluride is, is I, I see Toronto is happening. I see New York is happening. I see Venice is happening, even if we can't go to Europe. But Telluride to me is the most, is the biggest question mark. And uh, Colorado is very strict. And um, I'm just awaiting the moment where they say, we don't want any of you COVID ridden Angelinos and New Yorkers to come to our clean state. And in which case they can still have Telluride, it'll just be more exclusive than ever before. They can't, because the, be, the, the, the attendees are from all Burns. over the country. You'll yeah, have they'll, have, yeah, they'll have their Herzog rich people who live there. On the park bench, Laura Linney. Werner Herzog. Yeah, in his own theater. He won't get there. He can't get there from Are you Germany. kidding me? That guy could get it. That guy jumps that in. That guy? Yes, he lives in L.A. anyway. <laughs> Look, I was prepared to drive or take the train and drive. And, well, let's um, be clear. You are sort of still. I could do that in, yeah. in theory, and I, I might do that because I've never done the Four Corners. I've always wanted to go hiking in the Four right. Corners. Now's the time. Hey, we have to be willing to take this, not risk, but, but, but to embark on adventures to continue to do what we do. So that, that will continue to be a part of the conversation. The question is, when does responsibility enter into it? It's not just about being responsible for your own health, but responsible for other people as well. I mean, we were talking about movie theaters reopening and these whole, all these questions, right? Tenet got pushed up, Mulan's July release seems to be in doubt. And uh, as, as critics and journalists, you know, if these movies were having all media screenings, we'd have to go to say, in my case, like the AMC in Times Square to go see that movie. Now, I could wear a mask and go into the AMC and sit several seats away from different people, but do people want me there? Is that, is that a good idea for anyone involved? You I mean, haven't been invited to an indoors, but New York is, I mean, they, they're saying they're not even opening theaters in phase four in New York. 
Right. There's still and, and we've talked to New York exhibitors. I mean, New York theaters are smaller. They're not as palatial. They're, they're really difficult to have the kind of uh, spacing that they're talking. All right. So the theaters have been announcing their different um, protocols. AMC, of course, went out and did this ridiculous thing with not demanding that customers wear masks. It, Regal, at one point, apparently, was even going to not have their their um, employees wear masks, but they backed off on that, and they will have their employees wear masks. Cinemark is setting a very good standard for what, what should happen. Those are the top three chains. Alamo, of course, is being very good uh, about their protocols. Um, so right now, the theaters are going to demand that people wear masks. Whether they enforce it, I don't know. Um, but that was an interesting misreading of, of what the reaction would be. And today they announced in the UK that Cineworld, which owns Regal, isn't going to demand that people wear masks in England. It's just so, it's, it's just... I don't get it. It's infuriating and... Um, they have concession sales. How stupid people are about something like this. It's like, okay, I could, I could understand, you know, if you wanted to say... Um, you know, you don't have to sit in a different row. You can do two seats apart or something like that, even though the CDC says, you know, separate the row. Like, you, you could bend the rules on certain things, but when it comes to something like a mask, where, where we know now that this is part of the safety protocol, there should be no question about it. And everybody's used to wearing masks now. I know. And, and they're going to have, I mean, most of the theaters are basically saying you come in with a mask, you, you don't, you, you know, you buy your ticket virtually, um, you, you pick up your, your concessions and you go into, uh, I mean, they have pictures of people with masks and gloves and all that. You go and get your seat where you're spaced. And then if you want to eat your popcorn, you can lift off your mask but I don't want to be in the air conditioning, even if it right. is filtered. Anytime you're indoors, you're, you're, there is a risk involved. And I think that people will, the, the, the reason why all of this is an issue is that people will want to take that risk. I don't necessarily want to do it because of, you know, the, the fact that not just my own health might be at risk, but, I, but if I am sick, I could be giving it to somebody else. But I think, you know, when you, you wander around New York now, um, you can sit outside at restaurants. And there's tons of people sitting outside. Mm. Um, people are ready to go do stuff. And if they're told they can go to a movie theater, they're going to go to the freaking movie theater. And that's, no, I have no doubt of it. Bad. It's good and bad. I mean, I would love to see a solution here that makes it seem as if going to the movie theaters is safe again. In the meantime, we do have the drive-in option. Even Toronto has said that there may be some drive-in experiences as part of the festival this year. I did get invited to a drive-in screening, but it was at 8.30 at night, and I was too tired. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's I would like, have had to schlep to the valley, go to an 8.30 screening, and then come Yeah, yeah whatever. I, I think that um, if we see, saw a proliferation of drive-in movie theaters and it was easy for people to go the same way it's easier to go to a movie theaters in, in, in normal times, then that would be one thing. But it is I want to see Tenet in a movie theater. This is the issue. They're not going to let movie theaters uh, like drive-ins be first run for a movie like Tenet. And I wish they would reconsider those, those rules. Yeah, because that, that would be a theatrical experience. I mean, ten, Tenet on a big screen outside in your car is still different than watching it on a, on a little thing in front of you. And they really are missing out. And the, just in general, I'm sort of disappointed with um, 
the, the fact that drive-ins haven't found their moment. I mean, I see a lot of stuff that's like double bill of jaws and tremors or whatever. And it's like, well, part okay. of it is that it's like half of the, if Tom Bergerman explained this to me, it's like half of the box office, if it's a double feature and you're sharing the till, you know, it's, it, I, I have to say, I mean, um, it, it, I wish they'd get over it though, because they're kind of, they really are kind of um, third tier. They're, they're not considered first run. And so a big studio movie like Tenet doesn't play you know, driving. They should change. I want, somebody brought this up. I was watching, this is what I do at night. I was watching the cinephile game last night with uh, Amy Nicholson and, uh, and various people. And, and uh, I enjoy it. It's a silly trivia game, but, but it, it, they, they, they brought up the idea that they should take Tarantino's new Beverly programming to a drive-in. Why not do that? You know, I would go in a heartbeat. Totally. I mean, I, I, that's the thing. It's like, I, I thought the virtual cinema conversation was an interesting way to innovate. It doesn't feel like it's, it feels so small that it's not enough of a kind of solution. People make hundreds of dollars yeah, on that's, those things. It's not a big... As opposed to thousands. <laughs> whereas the idea of doing something big and outside that really does take advantage of the, the idea of social distancing and an event that's a collective experience is a solution. It's not a long-term solution necessarily, but it is a solution. No, we have now. it's not a model. It's not because there are not enough theaters. There's only like 350 drive-ins, so yeah. it's not really. I mean, a think model. about what if, if you had if the fall festivals were all big outdoor screenings. If, if if the New York Film Festival, you know, had a big premiere that was outside somewhere, you could have photos. You could have a Q and A. Two people, a moderator, and talent on very different sides of the stage. I mean, you could you could have that experience. Sure. So hopefully, that's going to be part of all of this too, and and um, and it won't just be you know Oscar season unfolding on our on our computer screens or whatever it is. I mean that that may happen for a lot of voters anyway because they watch things on screeners. But we do need that initial exposure that feels like something that goes beyond those limitations as a reminder of how cinema really sort of thrives in that context. So. But Eric, I mean, you're, you're, you're ac actually trying to keep up with the new movies, even if they are going to VOD. And, and what I find sort of disturbing is how willing I am to sometimes let them go and not watch them and I not feel like I have to see them. And that's not good because well, I'm sure that's true of a lot of other people too. But this is a challenge that we, that is always here for us. I mean, in New York and in a, a year ago or something, there were always too many movies to keep tabs on opening on a given week on top of all the repertory stuff. You know, there, there's, there's so many hidden gems that, that surface in different kinds of smaller release patterns. And it's really hard to keep, uh, keep on tabs on those anyway. So I feel like what we're, we're experiencing now is, is a magnified version of that. I thought it was interesting the weekend that uh, the Spike Lee movie came out on Netflix and the Jet Apatow film came out on premium VOD. And there was this sense of people were like, finally, some, some real yeah, movies. People were really talking about both of those that in the Twitter conversation. By yeah. the way, the Twitter conversation on AMC forced AMC to make that change. It was huge. Not only that, they were getting Masks. calls from all the studios. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but I but I think that that enthusiasm of finally some real movie movies to talk about it's it's much harder to explain this to people. But every week there is an opportunity to get enthusiastic about that. There are always new movies coming out that I think are worth 
seeing. I mean, that John Lewis film that, that Excellent. just came out. Excellent. I um, think that's Mignola. a documentary uh, Oscar contender for sure. And, uh, and Don and Porter just did a great job with it. I saw another great documentary. I mean, grades all right. These, none of these films are masterpieces, but they're films I would say are worth checking out. I saw another documentary opening this week called The Ghost of Peter Sellers about the production of Ghost in the Noonday Sun, uh, a, a, a completely terrible misfire that he made and clashed with the <laughs> filmmaker. And it's one of those behind the scenes things where it's like a ticking time bomb watching this guy's ego destroy every aspect of this production. It was a really cool movie. Now, is anybody going to watch it at home when you have a million other things you could be binging? I don't know, but that's not a new problem. So, so the know. one movie that I really, really liked, which we keep meaning to talk about, and we haven't done it yet, was Bad Education. That's something that that debuted at at Sundance, and I um, caught up with it online and on HBO, and it it it. it totally riveted me and amused me and moved me. And it, it's, it's one of those movies that has a very specific tone, very comedic, but dark. There's real characters there who, who are being shown to us in all of their flawed glory. And I was pretty impressed with Hugh Jackman being willing to uh, not only play a, a very tortured gay man, but a man who was behaving in a very, very bad way. Yeah, <laughs> and, very corrupt, very corrupt way. And Allison Janney was also uh, enjoying her, her corruption. Um, yeah. What, what, did, what, did you, what did you think? It played you know? along of, in a, it, you, you have to get that tone just right. Yeah, I mean, I, so I've seen the movie twice now and it's a, it's a fascinating one to talk about right now because here's a film that was acquired at a festival and the buyer HBO chose to bypass a theatrical release pre-pandemic. That's right. Uh, but so I saw it with an audience at the Toronto Film Festival before it became the biggest deal in history. There. So it didn't debut at Sundance, it debuted no, at Toronto. It was, a, it was a TIFF premiere and I think it sold for like $20 million. Um, so it was this crazy sort of situation with a film that I think, uh, you know, played really well, but was not, you know, if it had been at Sundance, I think it would have been an even bigger sensation. And at TIFF, there was a lot of noise around Oscar movies and stuff, and this was an acquisition. This title. wasn't one of those, yeah. It wasn't quite. So, they so made I, the, although now, it, so it's not going to be eligible for the Oscars if it nope. didn't have a theatrical It's, a, it's uh, an, Emmy, an Emmy play. And, yeah. and I think what's interesting about it is that this movie... I actually liked it better the first time I watched it. The first time I watched it with an audience, there was like a kind of campy thrill to it because there's there's moments where you discover things about Hugh Jackman's character, this very confident guy. He's very likable and charming yeah, yeah, very in so likeable. many ways. And this, and this um, high school newspaper reporter, all true story, like gradually starts to figure out aspects of his personal life that are very salacious and there's a lot of ooh wow you know kind of these re revelatory moments that change the course of the plot and uh, when I watched it on my own or with my wife I, I felt like there were certain parts about it that were a little overplayed but it was because we didn't have that audience experience in a way and I wonder if on the small screen, it resonates for as many people as it did in the sort of insular festival environment. I would have I mean, liked to have seen it with an audience, but it played pretty well for me, uh, I have to say. I mean, I was never bored. I was never tempted to walk away and get a drink or anything. I mean, it was really- Yeah, it's very uh, engaging. It was very engaging. And if you start reading about the real life story behind this thing, it's fascinating. I mean, Hugh Jackman is definitely more 
handsome than the person he's playing in real life. But and what yet he's there? not as as movie star uh, gorgeous uh, as he can be. He he allows himself to look. Uh, he's not vain. This is not a right. vain performance. No, I think it's actually one of his best. In he really looks a little time. older, a little uh, uh, strained, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Corey Finley is a really talented filmmaker. This is his second feature, though he, he was also a, a, an established playwright. And uh, I really like the way the movie sort of, it's not, I mean, it has some, some, um, can, some shares some DNA with election in a yes. way, but it's not quite as arch and, and it's not quite as satirical in quite the same way. It's like it kind of, it draws you into this the very sort of accessible drama and then catches you off guard with all these, you know, sort of dramatic twists. And it almost feels like it's going to go into this really violent place. I mean, it's like, it becomes almost like a thriller by the end. Um, so I, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating film. We'll see what happens with it. Um, and, it, and I do think that seeing what happens with it may give us some indication of what could happen to the Toronto films we see in the lineup this year, because, you know, HBO could come along and buy something for a release that once again does not need the theaters. So and it's going to be really And now they have HBO Max. It's a whole other HBO. It's a whole other universe. Exactly. All right. So next week we'll be back uh, right before 4th of July weekend to talk about all kinds of stuff. I'm sure we'll have some, some more updates on the festivals and other films that are planned to come out. And uh, we'll see if anybody chooses to delay their release dates further. But this, it's fun to, to, to pluck a, a film that's streaming to talk about each week. So I'm sure we'll find Well, I think we're going to find out what the real release date for Mulan is. I think Tenet is real. That's because they, they have advertising on it. They have the real date. Um, the Outpost is going to be out there. This Rod Lurie war movie. That's the first one out that isn't just drive-ins. And then you've got the, <laughs> you've got the uh, unhinged pushed back a week uh, and, and playing out all over the world. They got bookings in, in Europe and Asia and it's playing everywhere. I didn't realize Little Women has, has, has scored like $100 million in international release. You know, well, I mean, it's a surprise smash. Well, even before bigger, the that's bigger than you would expect from yeah. women. Yeah. Well, I, I'll take that over when when uh, a rainy day in New York was the highest grossing box office in in the world. I mean, and now they've got uh, Woody Allen opening what San Sebastian with his new movie. Right. So the future of cinema at the moment is an angry Russell Crowe. <laughs> And a Woody Allen comedy <laughs> at, a, at a film festival. That's very it's, fitting uh, for, for our crazy world right now. Yeah. Let's <laughs> get through all this and remember to, to, remember to vote, people. <laughs> we need to save this country. All right, all right Thanks, Eric. To you. Enjoy uh, your bucolic uh, retreat in the country there. Upstate for life. All right. Bye-bye.